0: Find out more at ReadingTheBibleLands.com This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. If you haven't been to Israel yet or you'd like to relive your tour, these on-site videos are the next best thing to being there. Check it out at com. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible, My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the podcast that helps you connect the Bible right to your daily life. Well, when you reach a certain age, you'll notice that your eyes are changing. Reading becomes challenging, but so does seeing things far off. Your optometrist may recommend progressive lenses to help you see both near and far, and that's what I have, and I'm telling you, that takes some getting used to. Life in our limited perspective is a lot like this, isn't it? We need the lenses of God's Word to see both the big picture and what's right in front of us all at the same time. And it's important that we do. It is so important. In today's episode, we're looking at the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. Joseph was someone who was able to see both today and eternity, and he shows us how we can do the same. I'll be back in a bit, but for now, let's get right into this week's podcast. My wife and I went to England last year, and one of the places we visited was a wonderful castle southeast, I guess, of London. And it's called Leeds Castle, L E E D S, Leeds Castle. Beautiful, beautiful place surrounded by a moat. I mean, it's just picturesque. You picture a castle. That looks like something that uh, would be in some movie. It's probably Leeds Castle. One of the things that they have there is a large maze, sort of like a labyrinth. It's these hedges that are, you know, ten feet tall, and they've laid out this maze that you can walk through and get lost in. I mean, the thing is huge. If uh, if you don't, you know, if you don't have time to get out of there, you're stuck. Ask me how I know this. <laughs> Kathy and I were walking by it, and I said, Hey, you want to walk through the maze? She goes, I really don't. I said, Well, I do. She goes, Go ahead. So <laughs> off I went into this maze, and about 45 minutes later, I'm looking at my watch thinking, We've got to catch our train back to London, because there in this little town, there's only a train like every you know, two hours or something. And so I was thinking, I've got to get out of here. And I'm like looking. There's no way to crawl under these hedges. I am stuck in the middle of this maze. And then I just stopped and thought, okay, how am I going to do this? Because everyone else around me was also lost. They, had, they were clueless how to get out of there. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to use a little technology. And I pulled out my phone, and I found Leeds Castle on Google Maps. I turned on the satellite. And I zoomed in all the way to the maze. And I could see the little blue dot on there that was me and my phone. And so I just started walking around like this, looking at the maze with my phone. And I found my way out of there by using that thing. (laughs) What's that? No, it wasn't cheating. It wasn't cheating. This is what uh, when 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 the Lord God told Adam to uh, conquer the creation. That's what it was. <laughs> it's just like this. His eyeglasses aren't cheating; they are using the the creation that God's given us to uh, adapt to our weakness. <laughs> You know, you're right. They do call them that. I don't need them for reading, but I do need them to see you, brother. So I'll keep them them on. Well, speaking of seeing, I brought up here this little creamer packet. I don't know how many ounces are in here. I was trying to look, but it's not much, it's pretty small. It's, uh, you know, I'd say what? Half an ounce, something like that? A spoonful. Let's call it a spoonful of cream. In fact, it's hazelnut. And it's not very big. But I tell you what, if I put this in front of one eye and I look around at you, it is bigger than all of you. In fact, it's bigger than this whole group right here. It's huge if this is all I'm looking at. If I am focusing in on this little few ounces of creamer, it's massive. But the reality is, it's not that big. A basketball is bigger than this. A planet is even bigger than that. Come to think of it, God is infinitely bigger than this little creamer. But when we focus on the small things, and that is all we look at, It's all we see, even though there is so much more that is far bigger than the little things like these creamers. Now speaking of glasses and cheaters, if you wear glasses, you remember the first time you put them on. I know you do, because it was life-changing, wasn't it? I'll never forget the first time I put my glasses on. I was 12 years old. I remember when I was, uh, before I got glasses, I was sitting there in like front row of my algebra class and I couldn't read the board. I thought, hmm, I bet I need glasses. So my mom and I went up to the mall and went to the doctor's office and two weeks later came back and they put these things on my eyes. And initially it wasn't that big a deal there in the office, but we walked out into the mall and it was like glory. I mean, things had shapes, things had edges. The little fika trees that were there in the mall had leaves. I could see things I had never seen before. Colors were brighter. It was like, I don't know, it's sort of in a small sense what I imagine heaven is going to be like. We're going to get there and just have a brand new perspective on things that were there all along. We just couldn't see. Now, fast forward 40 years. And let's keep the eyes going. You know, for a long time, I wore contacts, which are amazing. They're like being healed when you're young because you can read and you can see far. Your peripheral vision looks good. I mean, everything works with contacts when you're young. In fact, I kind of wonder sometimes if Jesus didn't just walk around with contacts on people and just go. And that's how he healed them. (laughs) Probably not. It's probably the real thing. But I felt healed with contacts. It was like walking around, no glasses, nothing, I mean, healed. It was, it was, it was fantastic. And then I got in my 40s. And the whole world of needing readers showed up. Actually, I'm nearsighted, so reading isn't a problem, it's the distance. And the problem was, no contact could fix it. My eyes, of course, you all know, had changed and You get to pick one or the other. You're going to see up close or you're going to see far, but not both any longer without some assistance. So my doctor came up with a very creative solution. I told him, I said, is there any way that I don't have to wear glasses now for the rest of my life? He says, well, I do have a solution, but it'll take you a little while to get used to it. I'll give you one eye that can read and one eye that can see far. I said, that sounds stupid. Isn't everything going to be blurry? I actually told him that. He said, no. He said, your brain is going to rewire it, and after a while, it's going to seem like everything's clear. I said, okay. So we tried it, and it worked. And it worked, you know, for a couple years. I mean, I lived with it for a couple years. But it seemed like no matter where I sat in church, the guy in front of me was always in front of the wrong eye. (laughs) You know? So I'm... Always asking Kathy if we can switch seats. And uh, I just thought, you know what? It just is not worth it. I'm just going to go back to glasses. So you get back to glasses, and you still got your same problem. You want to see near or far. And if you want to see both, then you either got to get the bifocals, which only let you see, you know, one or the other, or you get these marvelous little things called progressives. Progressives is the optometrist's cruel joke At making you look at life through a keyhole. You always have to get it just right, and if you don't get it just right, you know. I mean, seriously, have you ever worn progressives? You get used to it, and it's better than not seeing, but just barely. Life in our limited perspective is a lot like all these metaphors of sight. Whether it's not being able to see up close, whether it is simply being in the labyrinth, and you need a high view. But I got to thinking, mainly life is like that little dispensation when I had contacts, when one eye could see close and one eye could see far. Because we need that, that perspective. We are very much committed to seeing close. I mean, we live day in and day out with close. Close. We've got our bills, we've got our family, we've got our health, we've got you name it in this life. It's all up close, it's all immediate, and it all hurts. But we also need that far distance, don't we? We need to be able to see far. We need to be able to see what's coming, to have a perspective on eternity, not just a perspective on now. We need to see near, we need to see far at the same time. And only God's word allows us that perspective. Let's look together at Genesis chapter 50 and finish up the wonderful life of Joseph, one who had, as best we can see in the scriptures, done a very good job of seeing both near and far. Near and far. Joseph's story, we started back in chapter 37, but it's this wonderful story of a terrible story that had a happy ending, and uh, often the reason that the endings are happy is because they started not so happy. It's the contrast. But Joseph's story was that he was the the second to youngest son of 12 sons. His brothers hated him because his father loved him, loved him the most. Jacob loved Joseph the most, and his brothers sold him into slavery. And uh, we won't go through the whole story because we've been through the whole story in our series. But you remember back at the very beginning, it's sort of a fitting to, to go with our sight metaphor that we've talked about. At the very beginning, Joseph's brothers met, saw Joseph coming. Remember Joseph went up to check on them. They had left and they were supposed to be at Shechem, but they weren't at Shechem. They had moved on without sending word. And just so happened that Joseph spoke with somebody that said, you know, they said they were moving on to Dothan. Okay, so a little farther northwest, Joseph went, and they saw him coming from a distance. And they grabbed him. They took his coat of many colors off, which is what basically separated him from them, you know, in status. So, okay, now we're even. And then they threw him in this pit. That was Joseph's experience at Dothan. Dothan only appears twice in the whole Bible. Wants uh, here, obviously. And an extra donut for anybody that can tell us where the other one was. Harry, do you know? Anybody? Elisha, remember Elisha and his servant woke up one morning in Dothan. And they looked around and they saw they were surrounded by Assyrians. Chariots, horses, I mean. They were like, there's nowhere to go. And the servant panics and says, you know, what are we going to do? And remember what Elisha says? Don't worry. He says, there's more with us than there are with him. And then Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes. And he saw the mountain surrounded by chariots and horses around Elisha. So there at Dothan, we have this wonderful um, experience, both in Joseph's life and in Elisha's life, of seeing what's there and seeing what's not there, and yet both are real. This is what we want to experience now in Genesis chapter 50. Genesis 49 ended, you remember, with the father dying and giving the blessing of uh, all the 12 tribes or the 12 sons. And the father dies, and then Genesis 50 verse 1 we read, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period requiring, required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. When the days of mourning for him were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. And all the household of Joseph, and his brothers, and his father's household, they left only their little ones, and their flocks, and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company." When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation, and he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So this first half of this chapter is really, obviously, focused on the burial of Jacob, and they go back to Canaan, or back to what we know as Israel, sort of in a a roundabout way. If If you think about it, going from Egypt to beyond the Jordan to get to Canaan is, you know, sort of like traveling from California to Texas by way of Louisiana. It's like, why would you overshoot it and then come back? The text doesn't tell us why, and we're sort of left to Guess, uh, my guess is that it, there was some sort of a premonition of the the exodus, which is obviously what's coming next. Because when the exodus occurred, that's how they entered the land was from beyond the Jordan. So maybe that's how they why they entered it this way. I don't know why it happened. Um, but the main thing is that Jacob was buried in the same place that Abraham and Isaac were buried. This is the Cave of Machpelah, the cave that that Abraham bought. The only piece of ground that Abraham owned in the Holy Land was in Hebron, and which is sort of ironic because God had promised all of the land to Abraham, and yet Abraham got none of it, and then he died. Hmm. So it's either God has reneged on his promise, or there's more to come. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 11 says. Just listen verse 13 says all these died in faith without receiving the promises having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth all these died without receiving the promises god made promises and they didn't get the promise and then they died what does that mean it means there must be a resurrection for God to fulfill his promises. And that's exactly what it means. And that's exactly why they all wanted to be buried in the promised land. Why Jacob says, don't bury me in Egypt, bury me in Canaan. I want to be buried, in fact, in the very cave where my granddad and my father are. Because that's where I want to be resurrected. Because that's where God's promises are going to come true to us. It was uh, an expression of faith to be buried there. And the the sons take Jacob up and bury him there. And then they come back to Egypt. And the loss of their father obviously grieved the sons, but it also did something in all of the brothers, except Joseph, to sort of removed their sense of security. They feared, we're about to see, that now with their father dead, the brakes are going to be off, and now Joseph is free to exact revenge for what they did to him. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father, your father charged us before he died, saying, Thus you shall, say, you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of thinking everything was okay between you and someone else, and then come to find out it really wasn't. Years and years of everything going along just fine, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, something happens, and you realize it's not all fine. And it's a total shock, because from your perspective, it was. Everything was okay. And then all of a sudden, you realize it's not. I've had that happen. And that is hurtful, very hurtful, because it's so needless. Why wouldn't we just, you know, talk about it and get it out all on the table and, and make it right? This is what Joseph experienced here. And so we can understand there at the end of verse 17, where he says it says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He wept because he had already forgiven them. He told them. Back in chapter 45, he told them, everything's okay. This is God's doing. It's not your doing. Joseph's genuine intentions of forgiveness were doubted after all these years. That's hard. When you're genuine and you're sincere towards someone and they doubt that, it's very, very difficult. The brothers figured that Joseph had only forgiven them in order to make sure that there was all peace with the father. Now that the father's gone, Joseph has no reason at all to keep up the charade. Now Joseph can do what what they expected that Joseph would do. This speaks not to Joseph or his character, it speaks to them and their guilt and the fact that even though Joseph had forgiven them, they would not forgiven themselves. They had not accepted that forgiveness they were still still fearful of it joseph's response is magnificent look at verse 18 then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said behold we are your servants but joseph said to them do not be afraid for am i in god's place as for you you meant evil against me but god meant it for good In order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Look at just this magnificent, gracious response. Twice he tells them, Don't be afraid. First thing out of his mouth, verse 19, do not be afraid. Then at verse 21 again, he says, Therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you. He comforts them. He speaks kindly to them. Literally, he speaks not just kindly, but literally, It's he speaks to their heart. He spoke to their heart. and i And we have to believe that finally at this moment they get it. He's got nothing left to hide or prove or fake. I mean, if he's going to be real, he's going to be real here. The father would never know it. And Joseph is the same gracious man that he was five chapters earlier and 17 years earlier. So 17 years earlier is when they first came to the land. And now 17 years later, Joseph is the same person. It's it's delightful to see it. His words remain one of the classic theological statements on the sovereignty of God. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph clung to the truth and expressed to them what he had told them 17 years earlier. Joseph factored God's sovereignty into the situation. I love that we talk about this repeatedly. We've talked about it in Joseph's life. I know that we talked about this when we went through the Bible and got to Philemon, because Paul uses the same principle in the book of Philemon. But it's a principle that we've got to constantly have in our lives as well, We see near, we see far. When we focus just on the near, we're going to live with fear like these brothers. I mean, how else is Joseph going to react? But like everyone else around him, Joseph's got the power. Father's gone. The brakes are off. Now Joseph's going to let us have it. But Joseph didn't see just near. He saw far. And we see that in his statement. You meant it for evil. That's looking near. God meant it for good. That's looking far. At the same time, both, both eyes, Joseph is using both eyes, near and far. You meant it for evil. There's no getting around that. Let's call it what it was. What you did to me was evil. He doesn't cover over it. But he says God meant it for good. God's sovereignty was acting in this. I am not a victim of you. You're not a victim of me. Ultimately, God is the bigger picture. We read the news, like reading the news today of that disaster in Boston. I just read that this morning and thought, you know, with, with my near eye, I think, God, how can our country ever pull out of this tailspin that we're in? But if, if all we're looking at is near, that's what we're going to see. We're going to live in fear. We're going to be afraid to go get groceries. But the reality is, there's also a far. We have to place our trust in a God who is sovereign, even when we don't understand what's going on. This is like the lesson of the book of Job. You remember the book of Job? Job's struggle in Job was, why is this happening to me? His wife said, curse God and die. His friends said, repent, you've obviously sinned. And neither were true. And you remember the book opens with Satan accusing Job and saying the only reason he- Satan tells the Lord, the only reason God that Job worships you is because you're good to him. Take away all the good and you'll see the real Job. And Job is saying, God, why? He knew he hadn't done anything wrong. And the book ends with the wonderful truth, with God asking Job all these questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you understand the, where the domain of light is? I mean, basically God says, if you can't understand simple things like how to build a planet. If you can't understand the realm in which you see, how can you possibly question me on on the moral and spiritual realm that you cannot see? Hey everyone, Wayne here. We have all heard about the missionary journeys of the great Apostle Paul. But there's nothing like seeing these biblical places for yourself. Corinth. Philippi, Thessalonica, and so many more places. How would you like to see all of these places for real? Well, you can. Registrations are well underway for my upcoming tour to Greece and Turkey in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. There's even an optional extension to the great cities of Rome and Pompeii. There's still room for you to experience these places that will change the way you read the New Testament, I'm certain. Check out the video and complete itinerary at waynestyles.com slash tours. And now, back to the podcast. Do you understand where the domain of light is? I mean, basically, God says, if you can't understand simple things like how to build a planet, if you can't understand the realm in which you see, How can you possibly question me on on the moral and spiritual realm that you cannot see? This is what's happening in Joseph's perspective. There is a reality beyond what we can understand. We see up close, and if that's all we have to factor with, we're done. But when we factor God's sovereignty into it, when we see both near and far at the same time like Joseph was doing, we can have peace. In fact, we can have such peace that we can forgive what people do to us. That's how how, uh, Joseph did it. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. I can forgive the evil that you've done to me, and it's evil because God is sovereign. And God had a bigger picture with your evil in mind to bring about, Joseph says, this present result to preserve many people alive. See, God had a plan for good even though you had a plan for evil. So here's principle number one or application that we can pull from our text. The text basically gives it to us right from, the, right from the book. But I reworded it just a little bit so you can write it down. Here it is. We can trust that the details of our present struggle serve as vital parts of God's grand plan. We can trust that the details of our present struggle serve as vital parts of God's grand plan. We have to factor God's sovereignty into your pain. I know that you're struggling, maybe big, maybe little. Factor God's sovereignty into that struggle. You're not a victim of life. You're a sheep in God's flock. Jesus said no one is able to snatch them out of my hand you're in the hand of god with all the pain that you're experiencing. I remember one time as I was reading through the book of Hebrews there was a question I always struggled. I mean I've got unanswered questions in the bible and every once in a while the door snaps open just all of a sudden there's the answer. So it's it's one of those things that I guess you know you're never the same person when you read the bible each time. It's always you're always different. You've grown, you've changed. Uh, Maybe you've regressed, whatever, but we never read it the same. We never read it the same. And I was reading Hebrews, and I'd always struggled, always struggled with the suffering of Jesus. Why do you have to suffer so much? I mean, what saves us from our sins, the suffering of Christ or the death of Christ? The death of Christ. He died on the cross, shed his blood for us. How come it couldn't just be done like that? Why do you have to suffer all those hours? Why did he have to suffer the the indignity to be spit on, to have his beard plucked? I mean, all the indignity that he suffered, the lashings on his back, what did that do? It was his death for us that redeemed us. Why the suffering, the incredible suffering? Really struggled with that. I was reading through Hebrews, and there's a section in Hebrews that talks about the fact that because Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered— And it says that because he experienced suffering at that deep level, he is able to come alongside and comfort us in the midst of our struggles. Jesus did it so that he could experience it, so that he understands where we're coming from. And Christ experienced a suffering on a level that none of us have ever experienced, because not only was it a physical suffering, it was a spiritual suffering of separation from the Father. I mean... When when the Apostle Paul says that he died a, a death and then an even death on a cross, this is like the worst kind of death. And so Hebrews reveals that, that answer to my question and a comfort to us that Jesus suffered because now he can identify with us when we're suffering. He totally gets it. He totally gets it. And he can empathize with us and he can intercede for us with mercy. That principle again. We can trust that the details of our present struggle serve as vital parts of God's grand plan. How essential it is that we have our time in the Word each day to see both near and far. I remember when I was teaching my girls to drive, um, most of us learned from a professional. My daughters learned from their father. You know, that's legal now. You can do that. You don't even have to leave the house, and you can teach your kids to drive. And that's what we did. We sat at the kitchen table, and we walked through all this stuff, and it was kind of fun. Actually, it was. It was really a lot of fun, except for those moments that I almost was killed. <laughs> but one time, we were sitting at the table, and we were reading through the Texas Driver's Handbook, which I'll tell you is a lot of fun. And we were reading through the Texas Driver's Handbook, and there was this one graphic that I just, just caught my attention. It basically said that when you're sitting in a parked car and you're looking out the windshield, you have a full 180 degrees in your peripheral vision. You can basically take it all in. But when you accelerate to like just 10 miles an hour, that field of vision narrows. I forget what the percentages are, but it's like every, with every bit that you accelerate, now when, and when you're going 70 miles an hour, ultimately, your field of vision is no wider than the headlights. That's all you see is what's coming. You don't see everything around you. And I thought, of course, this is like life, isn't it? The faster you go, the less perspective you have. You've got to stop. I mean, stop the car to see the full perspective. And that's what we do when we're in the Word every day. We stop the madness of the world just for a brief, you know, 20, 30 minutes, one hour, whatever your quiet time is. And you're in the Word, and you allow the Word to renew your mind. You allow the word to give you focus, not just on the near, but on the far. That you see both, like Joseph did. Otherwise, all we're going to see is the evil. You meant it for evil. That's all we're going to see. But God meant it for good. That's an addition that we must see. That helps us to trust that the details of our present struggle serve as vital parts of God's grand plan. Any other explanation for the struggles in our life are going to feel inadequate try to explain the struggles in your life apart from the sovereignty of God, the answer won't work. It won't work. Uh, I like the idea that God is sovereign because that means 100% or zero. He isn't like like 99% sovereign. He's 100% sovereign. If he was 99% sovereign, where do you think most of us would feel like we are? In that 1% exactly. And it's in those painful seasons that God comforts us with his presence. I didn't mention it, but that's another big takeaway from the the book of Job, is that God says, you don't need to know why, you just need to know who. I'm in control, and I'm right here with you, even though it really, really hurts. Have you ever noticed when you buy a car, you see your car everywhere, It's just perspective. You know, I don't know why I'm seeing Teslas everywhere now. Maybe that's because they are everywhere now. But I don't have a Tesla. But maybe this is God telling me to buy one. (laughs) Because when I buy a car, all of a sudden I see cars everywhere. I remember when I bought my Toyota Prius, all of a sudden there's Toyota Priuses everywhere. I just noticed them. They were there all along, but I never saw them. It took me being aware of it to see it. Think about Joseph's life and what we've read of his life so far. If Joseph wanted to focus only, where'd my little creamer go? If Joseph wanted to focus only on this little bitty thing, which is the pain that his brothers caused him, that's all he would see. If he wanted to focus only on the Toyota Prius that Father Jacob bought him, that's all he would see. But the reality is there's so much more out there that we need to focus on as well. In Joseph's life, if we, as we look through Joseph's life, we see God encouraging him all along the way. We see little moments like when Joseph was in the prison. And what do you know? He can still interpret dreams. This would have been a great encouragement to him that God has not forgotten him. It's the same way with us. If we will stay attuned to it, God will speak to us. And I don't mean that he will necessarily speak to us, but he will, through coincidence of his providence, or through the word, or through a conversation with a friend, or through some sermon that we hear, or whatever. God will encourage us all along the way and he'll let us know that, that we're not alone and he hasn't forgotten us. Well, Joseph makes the same request now, as he dies, that Jacob made when, when he died. Look at verse 22. Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis begins, as we saw earlier this morning, with paradise in a garden. Genesis ends with a coffin in Egypt. This is not the world God intended, and it's not the world that will be, as we see at the end of the Bible as well. Death boils life down to its essentials, and I'm trying to remember who it was. The famous last words of many people, I think it was Frank Sinatra's last words were pretty scary. He said something like, uh, I'm losing it. I think that's what he said. I'm losing it. I forget who the French composer was, he said, I'm dying, please bring me a toothpick. (laughs) First things first. The last words of Joseph here are words that point to forever. There's immediate and then there's forever, and Joseph's saying, God's going to take care of you. In fact, he says this twice. Look at verse 24. He says, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you. Anybody else have a different translation for take care of? Visit. What translation is that? New King James. Well, wonderful, because that is exactly what the original talks about. God will visit you. He also says that in verse 25. God will surely visit you and carry you up. Keep your hand here in Genesis, if you would, and turn to the book of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Don't lose your spot in Genesis. Well, actually, we've read the whole thing, but. uh, Genesis, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 1, all the way down to verse 68. Remember the context of Luke 1 is the preparation for the coming of the Messiah Jesus. And the preparation is, first of all, by the announcement of the forerunner of Jesus, who's John the Baptist. And this is the context of when the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias, speaks for the first time in nine months, and he says these wonderful words that are verse 67 through 80. But look at just verse 68. This is Zacharias's words. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Visit Interesting, from the time that Joseph said this in Genesis 50 to Luke chapter 1 coming out of the mouth of Zacharias in in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, I don't know that there is any other place in the Scripture that talks about God visiting his people in the same way. This visit isn't like, you know, God's coming over for dinner, you know, God's coming over for a visit. Visit here means that the power of God shows up either for blessing or for judgment. That's what the, this word visit means. Joseph referred to it in the sense of the Exodus, because he specifically mentions the Exodus. God's going to bring you back into the land. But his idea has a grander sense of the ultimate visitation, which Zechariah speaks of here, that God visited, he has visited his people, anticipating the coming of Jesus. And now, look at chapter 19, Luke 19, where the word is on the lips of Jesus himself. Luke 19, verse 41. This is Jesus at Palm Sunday on the back of the donkey. He comes over the ridge of the Mount of Olives and sees Jerusalem. Verse 41 says... When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but for now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within you, because, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation." the time of your visitation. God came, and ultimately God came in the person of Jesus. So back to Genesis, Joseph is speaking of the Exodus and that redemption, but ultimately the Bible is pointing prophetically to the final visitation, or that one that occurred there in Israel when Jesus presented himself as the Messiah. The second principle we can get from our text today is simply this. We can die with unfulfilled dreams because God's promises extend beyond the grave. We can die with unfulfilled dreams because God's promises extend beyond the grave. Life's been a disappointment, hadn't it? There's a lot in life that hadn't happened that we didn't want. A lot's happened that we didn't want to happen. There's a lot we wanted to happen that hasn't happened and probably won't ever happen. We are all going to die with unfulfilled dreams. Sometimes those dreams are ours, but sometimes those dreams are God's promises to us. Like it was with Abraham. All these died without receiving the promises. That's okay. Why? Because we can die with unfulfilled dreams because God's promises extend beyond the grave. There is a resurrection coming that we can look forward to. Uh, I've seen the pyramids in Egypt. In fact, I've stood right at the base of these massive, massive pyramids. The only one of the uh, wonders of the ancient world still standing, the pyramids of Giza, incredibly big. From a distance, they look nice and smooth, but that's only because you're seeing them from like 30 miles away. When you get up close, they're just as rough and as jagged as can be. Well, these were basically tombs for the pharaohs, for the early pharaohs. Um, it wasn't all that sharp, though, to do that, because basically what you're saying is, here's the treasure. Dig here. And they did. And so the tombs were robbed, and find, you know later generations of pharaohs decided, you know what, it would be better if we hid our tombs. And so that's what they did. And they still found them. You know, even in the 20th century, uh, King Tut's tomb was finally found. but. Uh, we don't find any kind of a, um, a pyramid or a tomb for Joseph. Joseph was, you know, the prime minister, from our perspective, of Egypt. And there were these kind of leaders that have tombs or ziggurats or, not ziggurats, but what do they call those things, mastabas in Egypt. Uh, you can go there and you can find them, but you'll, you won't find one for Joseph. Joseph, we're told told in the book of Exodus that his bones were taken, and then at the end of the book of Joshua, Israel buried Joseph's bones in accordance to Joseph's wishes in the land of Canaan, in fact, buried them in Shechem, which was the land allotted to Joseph's tribe. But I love Joseph's life, probably one of my favorite people in the Bible, because he had a firm confidence in God all the way to the end. I'll never forget. I'll never forget standing in a cemetery. I guess it was back 2006. My whole family was standing there before an open grave, and we're waiting for the the minister. Walks up, and uh, first thing out of his mouth was this: "We are here today to remember the life of Wayne Stiles." And I was like, "I, I we were my grandfather and I were both named Wayne Stiles." But I wasn't expecting that, and I'm standing there hearing that, and imagine yourself in a cemetery, people gathered. Man, I sort of expected someone to give me a shove, and, <laughs> and I fall into the grave. <laughs> but it was weird. It was, it was a weird feeling, and it, I mean, immediately, of course, your mind is set right because you realize, oh, my granddad's name, Wayne Styles, but still. You know, you want to check your watch and make sure the second hand is still moving. I'd never heard those words before in a cemetery, and I, and I never heard them again. And the next time they're spoken, I probably won't hear them. <laughs> Unless the rapture happens at that moment or something. But it, uh, it, it was an interesting, interesting time standing there to hear that because I realized, you know what? Someday people are going to be in a cemetery and they're going to hear these words again. And it's going to be me laying down there. And I hope that when that time comes, somebody will stand and share that my entrance into heaven is not because of a good life that I've lived. Because in addition to the good things that I've done, there's also a whole lot that's not been so good. The sins of my life are plenty. And all it takes is one to keep me from the glory of God. But our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross that death of incredible suffering to forgive me of my sins and you of yours. And all you have to do is believe that, that he died in your place and your sins are forgiven once and for all. You know, the road of our lives leads to death, and, but it doesn't end there. Our souls bounce and they never stop. They're in the presence of God for an unknown number of years from Earth's perspective until the voice of the Lord and the trumpet uh, of the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise. And our soul is once again reunited with our body, now resurrected, immortal, just like the body of Christ, and we will live forever in an immortal state. Wonderful. A resurrected state. We've all had people die and go to heaven. And I think, I know, that one of the reasons that heaven seems so real to us is not just because of the scriptures, but it's because of the people waiting there for us. They're they're there. They're there, and they're just as alert as we are now. Probably a whole lot more, because some (laughs) of you are asleep. (laughs) But seriously... Who do you have in heaven? You have parents. You have grandparents. You have siblings. You may have a spouse. You may have children who have gone before you. Certainly you have friends who are there. And, of course, we also have Christ. Heaven seems so real because the people that are there waiting for us. So in your struggle right now, remember that this life that we're living isn't all of life. It's just the little blip we call time. Eternal life is eternal, and that's ultimately where we're going. So, Joseph teaches us to keep this eternal perspective. Don't just focus on the near. Focus on the far, both at the same time, because both are true. Let's pray. Our Father, this life we live is only the four-year to forever. These brief years that we have on earth, filled with joy and filled with pain, are products of your sovereignty, and so we will trust you. As Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Thank you so much for that perspective, because it gives us the truth that we need to cling to on a daily basis in order for our lives to go on and for us to persevere and not give up. Help us, Lord, to persevere and not give up. And I pray for any who are here today feeling right on the edge of being done with life. It's just done. It's so difficult that you would strengthen them and give them hope that this life is not all of life, that there is so much more to come a life of glory with Christ, with the saints of old, with those who have gone before us. And we look forward to that. In the meantime, help us struggle well. Help us choose obedience for your glory. Help us have the perspective that's near and far at the same time. And we'll do it for your glory and faith in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. If you are struggling now, I hope that this message has been an encouragement to you to find that eternal perspective. The road of our lives seems to lead us just to death, but our story doesn't end there. Our souls are going to be reunited with our bodies one day, and we will live forever in eternity with Christ and with our loved ones who have gone before us. Isn't that great? Well, next time, we're going to talk about what to do when nothing satisfies. Many people feel unhappy with their lives, and they're searching for something or someone to bring lasting refreshment. We're going to look at a very special passage in the Psalms to discover the one thing that truly will satisfy us, and we can have it today. And by the way, if this podcast has encouraged you, I'm asking you to help me keep it going and also encourage others. You can now give a tax-deductible gift to help share the Live the Bible podcast with literally thousands of people every week. To give a one-time or a monthly donation, just go to LiveTheBiblePodcast.com and click on Donate. That's LiveTheBiblePodcast.com and click on Donate. Thanks so much, and until next week, Live the Bible. My friend, I hope you will read the Bible in 2024, and I'd love for us to read it together, seeing the places where it all happened. Check it out now at readingthebiblelands.com.